So what kind of people is the church for? That's the question that I, I want to begin with. What kind of people belong in the church? There's a cultural myth or a cultural force that says that the answer to that question is that the kind of people that belong in the church are respectable people. People who have their lives together, who are doing their part in the society in which we live to make the world a better place. People who, um, who look at least like they have it together and uh, who wear nice clothes and who make life seem like it's going just fine. So what do you do if, if, uh, if that's, that's a bit of the myth that we all believe and participate in at some level? What do you do if you're sitting here tonight and you're just thinking, you know, I know I look okay on the outside, but if people could just see what's going on in the inside of my heart and in my life right now, uh, I'd be terrified. If you could just see what my life was really like underneath the veneer, underneath the, the appearance that I give, if you really knew just how insecure I was, or how perverted I am, or how ambitious I am, or how afraid that I am, or how depressed that I am tonight. If you really knew that, I would, I would literally be terrified. I, I, I think a lot of us probably walk into the church in some ways like that. And the, the great and glorious news that we don't often really celebrate or at least make explicit is that this is a place for you. If any of those adjectives described where you are, where your mind is tonight, where your heart is tonight, the church is a place for you. It's not the place for uh, those who have it all together. It's not the place for those who, who appear to be on the path to success. It's the place for the down and outers. It's a place for those who are, are, are struggling with the things that face us in the world. It's a place for those who know the distance between what what ought to be, at least what they sense deeply in their heart, is people made by God, and then what is. That kind of dissonance in your heart. What ought to be. Who I ought to be, and then who I really know myself to be. To deny that the church is for people like this is, is kind of like saying that alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous is not for alcoholics. It's kind of that, that equivalent. Um, that's, this is, these are the people for whom the church exists. This is, this is the body in which we are a part. It's a body of people who are broken, people who don't have it all together, and people who aren't pretending that they have it all together. That's who the church is for. Because in, uh, in that kind of life, when we see ourselves in that way, there's really good news for those people. There's really, really good news. And the good news is simply God himself. The good news is that, is that there is a God and that he made you, and that he longs to know you and to shower his love and his mercy upon you. The good news isn't you. We looked last week a little bit at some of the self-reform philosophies in the world um, that we often tend to think that we we can make something out of this person that we know ourselves to be by just working harder, by, by trying harder, by, by, by taking the next kind of philosophy that's out there and applying it to our lives or, or self-help technique. But it's not you that's the good news. You're not the good news. You don't have to be the one to make this whole thing work. Listen to these words from a young student in India in the 1920s who was a follower of Jainism 
which was a, is a religion that believes that true perception, um, a true vision of reality, and true and moral behavior is the key to liberation in life. This is what he wrote. I have deep faith in my own religion. I believe it to be entirely true, but I need not be ashamed to tell that it exacts unflinching duty and knows no grace. Philosophically, it's all right. You may believe, according to it, that the power behind all things is supremely just and indifferent. But we err, and we know not why. We are led on, as it were, on the waves of sin and mistakes. There are powers too great for our frail being. And I wish that there were a God who would be kind to me, who would feel my weakness, and who would extricate me from the meshes of sin and temptation. We err and we know not why. We are led on, as it were, on the waves of sin and mistakes. And I wish that there were a God who would be kind to me, who would sympathize with my weaknesses, and who would extricate me out of sin and temptation. Honest words from someone who recognized that despite believing in a certain way that, that, that life wasn't all together, it wasn't all figured out, and this is the cry of, of the, the good news of the church of Jesus. That there is a God. There is a God who helps us in our weakness. There is a God who extricates us from sin and temptation. There is a God who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Sympathize with us more than you could ever imagine because he became one of us and walked among us and experienced the frailty and, and the difficulty and the temptation of the life that we lead. But he does this work among those. He does this sympathizing, recreating, empowering work among those who repent, among those who know the depth of their own brokenness and unsoundness, as we've been looking at for a few weeks now. Um, these are the ones among whom God does his work. Now, let me just say, let's just be honest here for a second. There's really only one kind of person in the world, a broken one. That's the only kind of human being that exists, a broken one, an unsound one, one that does experience a lot of dissonance between what is and what ought to be. That's the only kind of human being that lives. But that kind of human being embraces this in one of two ways or deals with this in one of two ways. There are those who say, I see this and I embrace it and I own it. And as we've looked at David's prayer here in Psalm 51 for the last several weeks, we've seen David model and exemplify this one who, in what we're calling repentance, who's turning back to God by owning the depth of his own brokenness and unsoundness. And then there are those who resist that affirmation of their own brokenness and appear to have everything together and to be going on the uppity up, kind of getting bigger and better all the time. Those are the only, so there's one kind of person, but those are the only two kinds of that one kind of person. Either those who are embracing and acknowledging and crying out from this place, or on the flip side, those who are resisting and pushing away and saying, no, that's not me. And working harder and harder and harder to prove that that indictment that they know deep down in their heart is reality, is not genuinely reality. So those are the only two kinds of people. So all I'm saying here is that God has chosen in his grace and goodness to do his work among the people who acknowledge and recognize that they are broken, unsound people. 
That's the, those are the people among whom God is doing his work. The ones who say, I'm messed up and I know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says also, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a physician, but the sick. This is the constant testimony of the scriptures. Is that it's only those who know that they're sick, those who know that they are, are broken, that God's grace and love can come into and make a difference in. It's not those who tip their hat to the brokenness, but then maintain this fundamental, this, this, this affirmation of their fundamental soundness. Now, why am I saying all this? Look at verses, well, maybe just listen to verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. For you, O God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You will not turn away the broken and the contrite. You won't turn away those who see the depth of their own brokenness and messed upness. You won't turn those away. But on the flip side, conversely, a proud and exalted heart, you will despise. You will turn away. You won't receive and you won't bring in. So what, what David is saying in these verses here in 16 and 17 is that, that those who come to God with a kind of external observance, a sacrifice, a burnt offering, but are refusing to give God their heart, who are holding on to some kind of, of respectability about themselves, some kind of, I'm actually really pretty good. In fact, I'm better than most of the people around me. The people who are holding on to that kind of way of thinking about the world, God will push away. And we hit this last week, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those who give external observances, those who, who, who we don't give sacrifices anymore, but those who, who come to church, those who give to the offering, those who kind of give these kind of external tokens of faithfulness, but whose hearts are withheld, who aren't living in the awareness of their own unsoundness, they'll miss the redemptive and powerful work of God at work in their own hearts. That's what David's saying in this text. Now, why might this be the case? Why is it that God would receive the broken and contrite heart? He would not despise that heart. But why is it that he would resist the proud? Why is it that God would do things this way? Listen to Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. It's, it's the reality that that those who come to God without being broken, those who come to God without acknowledging their own, um, being, their, own being, their own messed upness, those who come in their own strength, in a sense, will steal glory from God. And what I mean to say is this. Let's think about going back to the church. Now, what kind of people is the church for? The church is for people who are messed up, people who are broken. Let's think about the kind of witness that the church of people who aren't messed up actually gives to the world. Remember the prayer from Luke 18 last week. The Pharisee saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. 
I'm actually, I'm, I'm good, I'm doing okay, I tithe, I, I, I follow the rules, I'm, I'm doing fine. That's actually a self-promote, that's a self-proclamation, isn't it? The church that isn't broken will proclaim itself. The church that, that, that hasn't been humbled will constantly be, instead of proclaiming God, will proclaim itself, proclaim its own strength. It'll, it'll do so with a kind of hypocritical spirit, a better than judgmental spirit, a spirit that says, you know, we actually have it pretty together. Thank you, God, that we're not like those people over there. It'll do so with that inability, going back to our first week in Psalm 51, to see the sin and the brokenness in its own heart. To, to focus on the speck in our brother's eye when there's a plank in our own. And that kind of witness actually drags the name of God through the mud because it's actually fundamentally opposed to who God is and to the glory of his nature and his character. So, so when we think of why might God actually receive the humble, it's because God longs to be lifted up and glorified. And it's the church of the humble. It's the church of the brokenhearted. It's the church of the down and outers. It's the church of the people who don't have it all together that erupts in praise, that erupts in worship, that erupts, that cannot contain it like a volcano erupting in the glory of the God who comes and brings life where there was once death. And God is glorified in a church like this. God is glorified when his people cry out, hallelujah, glory be to God who rescues the brokenhearted, who comes to their aid. When God restores me, I will tell of his glory. I will sing of his praise. I'll worship him in spirit and in truth, as the, the reading from John 4 talked about. And this is the power of testimony. This is the power of those who've experienced the recreating power of God in their own lives to come and to, and to tell everything that Jesus has done in our lives. Think about the woman at the well. We read about her. Incidentally, Jesus had pointed out her sin. He had pointed out her brokenness. You haven't, you're right, you don't have a husband. The guy you have right now isn't your husband, and you've had five husbands before him. He points this out to her so that she would see the depth of her own need. And her encounter with him leaves her to run back to her town and to tell everyone about this man called Jesus. And based on her testimony, they come to hear more about her, about him, from him. And then they believe no longer on her testimony alone, but on their own experience with the risen Christ. This is the source of true mission. This is the nature of Peter. Peter, the one who was so bold, Lord, I will die with you. I'll defend you to death. Who whips out his sword in the garden of Gethsemane and cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest who only moments later is denying that he has anything to do with Jesus. Denying him before a little servant girl. From the great brave warrior to the cowardice denier of his master. Where Jesus in John 21 comes back to the one who denied him and restores him in his great love. Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And this traitor, this one who denied his very Lord, is then installed again as the apostle. 
to go out and to be one who bears witness, who speaks of all that God has done in his life in the world around. Think about the Apostle Paul for a minute. Paul, the one who was so zealous for the traditions of his forefathers, who's persecuting the people who follow Jesus, whom Christ intercepts on the road to Damascus, reveals his glory to, and causes Paul to be humbled, to be brought to his knees, to be blinded. And Paul, who who says that this is a true and trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, the foremost. This is the pattern. It's the pattern of, of failure. It's the pattern of broken. It's the pattern of being messed up and then being restored by the love and the grace and the mercy of God and then going out and speaking of this grace and mercy and power of God. It's not sharing people with people what we read about in a book. It's not sharing a, a theory about, about the divine um, being. It's personal testimony from the broken, messed up sinners that we are who have encountered a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness, pouring out his recreative power upon us. I shared this with you about six months ago. This is from E. Stanley Jones. It's the story of a man who speaks about what Christ has done in his life in this group of people who had gathered together to discuss things of religion. He says, In the midst of this group sat an unassuming retiring youth with bare feet dressed in simple homespun. He was an MA student, a convert from the Aborigines. There were millenniums of spiritual and social culture between the rest of his group and this youth. But as he began to speak, every eye was soon fastened on him, for he was evidently speaking out of reality as he told of what Christ meant to him. It was simple, direct, and real. Christ's touch was upon his life, and lo, he had leaped beyond the group around him and had gained life's secret meaning. As men sat listening, they instinctively felt that he had found the way of life and that they had missed it. This simple youth among learned, cultured men in India, speaking of his encounter with the risen Christ, a personal testimony from his brokenness about the one who saves and redeems. This is the mission of the church of sinners. It's the mission of testimony of the grace and power and recreative work of God among those who were, who were doomed to death and despair and depression. This is the mission that we've been given. And we see this in David in verses 13 to 15, lived out before us, where David has been the one who has been caught in his sin of adultery and murder, is turned into the one who gives great testimony to the work, the recreative work of God, bringing life where there was once death. And he declares these three things in verses 13, 14, and 15. Your ways, your righteousness, your praise. David doesn't speak of his own goodness. He doesn't like the, the Pharisee in Luke 18. He's not proclaiming himself. He's proclaiming God, the good news that we have to bring to the world. That's what he's proclaiming. Your ways, your righteousness, your praise. And these are the ways of what? Of a God who is kind and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, merciful, abundant in mercy, a God who loves to come near and make sinners his own to make those people who know that they're so messed up that they can't make life work on their own, to come into their lives and literally transform them from the inside out. These are the ways of the God that he's proclaiming to the people around him. 
And he's proclaiming it to sinners. He says, so then let me teach. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He's proclaiming this news of a God of steadfast love, a God of of recreative life in people among the people who are missing the mark, the people who are broken, the people who are wishing they had something more in life but don't know what it is. They can't figure it out. The people who are wed to ideas of success in the world that never satisfy, that never bring fruit that they promise, that never bring peace. These are the people among whom David is proclaiming this good news of a God of recreative life and power for sinners and broken people. It's not that he's just going around telling people in his little Christian subculture, you know, making music for people who already know what he's saying. But he's, he's breaking out of that place of the church into the city of Boston, into your campuses, into the people, your coworkers, the people that God has placed around you and declaring the ways of God. A God who forgives sinners. A God who is the friend of sinners. A God who's on the side of the brokenhearted. And he proclaims their ways, the, the, the ways of this God among those people. This is what he proclaims. This is E. Stanley Jones again. As men listened to what, what those who were in touch with Christ were quietly saying, they instinctively felt that here was something redemptively at work at the heart of life, redeeming men from themselves and from sin, putting worth and meaning into life, giving an unquenchable hope to men, lighting up the inward depths of life, bringing them into fellowship with God in beautiful intimacy and furnishing a dynamic for human service. The living freshness of it struck us all. Here was life catching its rhythm and bursting into song. Here was God, not as an absent deity or an abstraction, but God, tender, available, opening the sources of divine love to the healing of human need and entering into fellowship with, human, with the human in an intimacy too close for words to express. Here was life catching its rhythm and bursting into song. This is the message that we bring to bear as those who have been rescued. Among the people who are missing life, who are missing the mark, who are chasing after the idols that this world has to offer. But how do we bring this message? How how do we bring this message into the world as the church of sinners? Not over others. Not from a place of being better than others. But from a place of being one in solidarity with others in this place of being messed up and broken. How often is it that the church communicates the good news about who God is with an air of superiority, an air of I'm right? We are so guilty of that in the church. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. These lips which summoned Bathsheba to my bedroom. These lips which kissed the woman that was not mine. These lips which ordered the murder of her husband. These lips which which pointed out the sin in the, 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 the story which Nathan brought to him about the rich and the poor man and said, this, is deserve, this man deserves to die. These lips, these lips that are so polluted, that are so wed with the brokenness of the world around me. It's these lips, Lord, that I'm asking you to open now that will now declare your praise, 
that will declare the glories of the God who draws near to the sinners like me. So the witness of the church of sinners is not a witness of superiority, but it's a witness out of humility, out of being broken, out of being the one who was, was in death, who God's love has brought to life. That's the manner in which this testimony is given. And to what end is this testimony brought to bear? Verse 13, and sinners will return to you. As the church of sinners, the church of the broken people, goes out into the world having experienced the love and forgiveness of God in a deep and personal and intimate way and speaks of this God's ways of forgiving and steadfast love to the world around us. Not from superiority, but from humility and from our own brokenness. And as we bear this message, the fact of the matter is is that those who are drinking from all kinds of polluted wells in the world around us will come to drink from the well of living water. They'll return. They'll experience the truth, the true liberation of what it means to truly turn back to God, to acknowledge our own need and to cry out to God for mercy and to find in crying out that God will meet us in that place. And that's the fruit of the mission of this church. The mission of the church of the people who have it all together is condemnation, judgment, ridicule, irrelevance. The mission of the church whose solidarity with a broken human world is life, recreation, power, something people can taste and touch and feel, especially the people who, as we started this time together, are feeling deeply insecure, deeply perverted, deeply afraid, deeply ambitious, and are longing for a way out. Repentance, which is what we've been looking at for the last four weeks, leads to resurrection, which leads to mission. Repentance, death, leads to resurrection and new life, which leads to an eruption of praise out of the personal testimony of your heart and of mine that has known the forgiveness of God. Lent leads to Easter, which leads to Pentecost. Repentance to resurrection to mission. We talk a lot in this community about wanting to be a missional family, about wanting to be on the frontier, engaging in mission in the world around us. That mission will only be enlivened and animated by a community that not only begins in repentance, but continues in a lifestyle of repentance. Because as we repent, we are brought face to face once again with the recreative love and forgiving love of our God, whose nature is to restore, to redeem, and to recreate sinners like us. And in that encounter, we are then given once again a song, a song of praise, a story, a personal story to tell to the world around us from a place of solidarity as one who is longing for life. Pray that God would make this so in our lives, that mission would not be a duty, but it would be a response to the God of great love. Amen.